my cold medication is so good that Chuck just had a brain fart. Welcome to episode 39 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, before we get started, I want to mention that we are sponsored by New Relic. You can find them at newrelic.com. And uh, I will also have a, a little banner up on the website. If you click that banner, then they know that you came through us, which helps us out. Um, and I'm also going to put a link up. So if you go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic, uh, then that will also take you to them and let them know that we referred you, which would be nice because they like to know those things. And uh, with that, we will get into our panel. Uh, this week on our panel, we have David Brady. Hi, this is David Brady, and I'm wearing Avdi's gold bikini. Woo-hoo! <laughs> we also have James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. And finally, we have Josh Susser. Ooh, I'm finally. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I'm finally, finally. I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about programming language fundamentals. Oh, good Lord. So one of you is finally, the other is finally, finally. You guys are so glad. You need to be so grateful that James and I didn't throw an exception. <laughs> a That's going to be that kind of show. Is that a, is, exception? Is that a Rails, is that a Rails uh, error? It's, double, it's, double finally error? Yeah, a finally, finally. Oh, dude, that would be so great. Just, just, just stack the finalies. Finally, 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 finally. Can can we edit this part out? <laughs> what? Okay. No, no, no. Never mind. Oh, my first okay. joke of the show, and you want to edit me out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, next time Dave talks, it'll just be bleep. <laughs> so, so programming language fundamentals. Um, the, uh, well, this question started as something like, uh, sh can Ruby be the first language that you teach someone? Yeah, yeah, actually, that was that was a good point. I think it was Avdi that started talking about it and was like, he was he was working with someone and teaching them to program, and he asked about um, certain languages uh, for teaching to program, and I, and he said that he didn't think Ruby was a good language for that, uh, which kind of surprised me. Um, and then uh, he, I asked him why, and his reasoning was that the uh, fundamentals were hidden by the incidentals. I believe yeah. is what he said. In uh, in Twitter speak, where you know he obviously didn't have a lot of room to elaborate, but uh, I found that interesting. Yes, kind of like the serious cybernetics corporation, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're 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 rock solid uh, product development philosophy was that their fundamental design flaws were completely hidden by their superficial design flaws. Yes. Nice. <laughs> So, so this guy's argument is because Ruby is clean and makes it easy to provide great abstractions, you shouldn't teach this. You should take a programmer and throw them into the obscurity of the weird, fast <laughs> backwards side effect crap so that they can't see it. You know what, kid? Why don't you go learn a real language like PHP? That, so I, I think that, that Avdi has a point. I think you know, Ruby is a really great language for programming and if you know what you're doing. Um, and and I think that that and we can get into this, but I think Ruby's probably an okay candidate for a teaching language as well if you do it the right way. Mm -hmm. But but Ruby has a lot of stuff in it. It's a real kitchen sink kind of language, mm -hmm. and I I think that that you can get distracted by all the the syntactic sugar and bells and whistles and cool things, mm -hmm. and it 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 it's hard to know what like what's the good core to focus on 
when you're learning. So right. Okay, so I believe as part of the discussion, there were several suggestions thrown out, and I believe Avdi actually favored a kind of C slash Lisp approach as an early language. Mm-hmm. So to speak to what Josh just said there, you know, Lisp would definitely fall in the category of not a lot of you know uh, kitchen sink kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, okay, Common Lisp has a lot of. <laughs> as I a say, lot I would- of- Stuff. I would refine that and say scheme rather than yeah, this. Scheme, scheme. Scheme is a classic FP language. Mm-hmm. It's only got three operators. I mean, come on. Yeah. Right. I, so, I, I, I think there are, there are six constructs in the entire – or concepts yeah. in the entire scheme language. Yeah. yeah. Right. But the thing is is that most people are going to wind up programming in a sort of C syntax-based language. So is Lisp really the right way to go? I mean, I guess it comes down to your philosophy of whether or not you're teaching them syntax along with the – the programming concepts or whether or not you're focusing strictly on the concepts and not worried about the syntax. Well, I, I, I'm going to obviously put in a word for small talk, but let me, let me do a little backstory here. The um, small talk was originally created, you know, Alan Kay, you know, created small talk to be the language that you would program the Dynabook in. And um, I'll let people look up all that stuff on their own. I'm not going to go into it, but the, um, then he, small talk became a big focus of it was teaching children how to program. And they, they went into schools and they taught children uh, to program using Smalltalk. And there was this really great, interesting thing that happened when they were uh, you know, doing this in uh, Silicon Valley. And they, you know, they taught a class of grade schoolers how to program using Smalltalk. And everybody did really well. All the students did really well with it, except for two of them. And then they took a look at those two students to see why they were having such problems and they talked to their parents and all that. And it, and it turned out that both of them were, were the children of programmers who worked at Hewlett Packard and had computers at home and had previously taught these children how to program using <laughs> BASIC. Mm-hmm. Using BASIC. And so, so these kids had a really hard time mapping their concepts of what you could and couldn't do in a programming language into Smalltalk. Yep. So, so they so they built. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they they built up this mental model of what you could do in a program, and and Smalltalk was really different from Basic, so they couldn't map their model over. So mm-hmm. so that's a pretty long winded way of saying that the concepts that you learn in a language are really important, and you know whether whether you're learning it in a Lisp type syntax or a Smalltalk type syntax or a C type syntax, it's really the concepts that that are the important thing, you know, iteration, recursion, delegation, what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to speak to that a little. I think I, I have always thought that that's the key, like that learning to program, the syntax is the stupid that it doesn't matter at all part. And that's exactly mm-hmm. the reason why um, if you're an experienced programmer, after you have, you know, a few languages under your belt, you can pick up a new language in no time at all. You know what I mean? It, it's mostly a matter of getting used to the syntax and learning the, the differences in that language. But especially, like, if you're moving from a functional programming language to a functional programming language or an object-oriented language to an object-oriented language, you know, mm-hmm. you, you already know how to think like a computer, which is the horrible part of programming, right? <laughs> it's, it's, that's why we're so bad at it, right? Because you have to dumb everything down and, you know. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. 
So. Yeah, well, there are some languages that have some fundamentally different concepts. Like if you look at Haskell or, or uh, Erlang. That's then, a good point. Uh, uh, Apple script. Oh. <laughs> 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 Just had to get that in there. Sorry. Well, well, even some uh, there are even some fundamental things about JavaScript that are different from other languages. Yeah, and and that's something that I think most of us use on a regular basis in our web development. So, so that's, an that's an interesting question. JavaScript was brought up during this debate as a good language to learn on, and I believe the reason was due to the accessibility of it, like that everybody has a web browser and everybody can just throw together a little page and start writing some JavaScript code in it and stuff no, like that. No, the reason is the speaker was a freaking moron. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. The, the, the fundamental flaw in the thinking here is that Ruby is a bad language to teach because you can't just give somebody Ruby and have them learn that one language and have them be a good programmer, right? Okay. Give me any language that we can teach you just that language and have you be a good programmer. I mean, besides small talk. And th there just isn't one, right? You can, you can start in C, but now I really want you to go learn a very high-level language like Ruby or Smalltalk. You can start in Smalltalk, but now I really want you to learn a functional programming language. You can start in Haskell, but now I really want you to learn you know, a, a very you know, stateless concurrent language like Erlang. And the, the reality is you can't take a single language and become a really, really good programmer. And JavaScript is the worst freaking language of them all out there. I, I just... Uh, don't get me started on JavaScript. Oh, wait, it's too late. Um, th there's no way to find out. <laughs> there's no way to find out what the limits of the system are. You can't tell if you're about to run out of memory. Your script just stops working because the browser decided that this uh, this com compiled version of the browser only has a stack level of 400 or uh, only has a stack level of 4,000 or only has so much heap space. And there's no way, there's no mechanism in the language to find out how much stack or heap you have available to you. It's It's a complete utter piece of crap toy language and that even includes the ECMAScript 5 specification it's a piece of crap but that said you should learn it it's 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 a, it's a very interesting language to try and think in it should be one of the languages you learn and but you shouldn't you shouldn't start with javascript and end with javascript and think you're a programmer you shouldn't start with ruby and end with ruby and think you're a programmer you shouldn't start and end with c or c++ or haskell or erlang and and end with one language and think you're a programmer and there's a lot of people out there who do do this and a lot of them are either c or php programmers and they've only learned one language and they've learned all the ins and outs and all the wacky you know side effects of it and they think they're programmers uh Good rant, good rant, man. Uh, the, <laughs> so, so that that uh, I'll build on that a little. I I I know a number of programmers. You know, they're they're professional web developers, and the only three programming languages that they know really anything about are Ruby, JavaScript, and Shell. Shell, and, yeah. Shell being Bash or Z Shell yeah, or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, you know that's that counts as a language, and they can do some stuff in that. But the, right. but it it just flabbergasts me that. You know, if you ask them a question like, what's the difference between a linked list and an array mm -hmm. or you know, fundamental data structures, their eyes just glaze over and they have yeah. no idea what you're talking about. Right. right. Yeah, that's, that's the advantage of, of seeing all the different languages, right, is that, you know, you get to see, you know, for example, Ruby doesn't even have a linked list in the standard or core library, right? Mm -hmm. There's no linked list. Now, of course, it's trivial to build one. I mean, it's like one line with a struct, you know, if, mm -hmm. you, if you want. Um, you know, obviously, you'd want to put some niceties on it eventually. But, um, 
but uh, it doesn't have one. But then you go to a language like Lisp, where everything is a mm-hmm. linked list, right? Everything. Um, and uh, so you spend all the time learning that. Um, so I, I think David's kind of right in that the exposure matters. You know, how are, how are you going to understand actor models if you've never mm-hmm. spent any time in Erlang or, or mm-hmm. some language like that? You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're just going to, you know, whereas if you spend time in Ruby, that's probably, and you try to do concurrency in Ruby, that's probably a good way to learn about Fork because, you know, uh, Ruby really bases its concurrency around Fork until we get to the, the newer VMs that finally have some native threading capabilities and the ability to not use a global interpreter lock. But that's very recent, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so I think just to kind of pull everything together, what we're talking about here is, um, some languages really excel in some areas and not others. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I think that's just kind of a general thing. And uh, the, other, the other point that seems to be coming up is that, uh, you know, a lot of it depends on the problem that you're trying to teach them to solve. And so if, if it's web development, then you're going to pick a language that does well with that. And if, if you're trying to teach them to solve um, like sysadmin type problems, then you're going to pick a language that excels in that way. Yep. Um, the thing that I think is really um, interesting, there, there are two points that come to mind. One is, is so, that, so you would pick the language that kind of gives you the maximum exposure to the concepts that you think are important. And uh, so, you know, you can make an argument then for Ruby or Java or C or Lisp or Smalltalk or whatever, depending on what you're trying to teach these programmers to understand. The yeah. other point is that um, oh, my brain just totally blank. Anyway, um, so so <laughs> I'm sorry. You, 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 had a, you had a memory segmentation fault or something? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That was hilarious. It was such a great role, too. I know. Time. I was on a roll. <laughs> my cold medication is so good that Chuck just had a brain fart. Yeah, my, a couple miles away. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, Dave. I, I, think, I think what you were saying is, is fairly accurate, though, Chuck. Like, for example, you know, can you... Uh, you know, fork fork processes, you know, redirect outputs, all that using Ruby. Yes, of course you can, you know, uh, set environment variables and stuff like that. However, do the same thing in Bash and it's easier because yeah. Bash is built around doing that kind of stuff. You yeah. know, that's that's what it does, you yeah. know. So, so, yeah. So my other so, point... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, finish your point because I, I have I have a I have a fork in the conversation okay. to follow. So my other point is the thing that I forgot that I now remember is that uh, basically uh, you can you can teach people these constructs, you can teach them the concepts, you can teach them the language, you can teach them the syntax, you can teach them all of these things. But ultimately, the thing that makes them a good developer is experience. Um, and I've been reading Outliers. I don't know if you guys have read that. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Uh, fascinating book. Anyway, I just read the chapter about the 10,000 hour rule and, uh, you know, it ties in a lot with, uh, what's his name? Andy Hunt says in uh, pragmatic thinking and learning where, you know, the, the experts are the ones with the experience and kind of instinctually know what to, what to do and what to use. And I just, I don't know if you can really teach that. I mean, you can definitely guide people into learning those things, you know, and give them problems that force them to solve those, those sorts of things and find the right solutions. But I'm not sure how you teach people or get them to that point where they're, quote unquote, a good developer simply because, you know, you can't give them 
that kind of experience by having them read a book or spend a few hours, you know, dinking around with whatever language you're you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that that that, that sounds about right. The um, the thing. Okay, so 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 back to one of my opening statements about uh, you could use Ruby to, as a good first language. Um, I and I think that's probably true because. You know, Smalltalk is essentially a subset of Ruby, right? <laughs> and 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 it's been shown that um, you know you can use Smalltalk as a good teaching language. Yeah, let's just get that out of the way right now. Smalltalk is Ruby dialect. <laughs> it's, it, it's it's well, I mean, Ruby is essentially a superset of Smalltalk. It's Smalltalk plus some Lisp plus some Perl. And so is is Ruby an acceptable Smalltalk? Uh, yeah, I think so. Ruby think Ruby so? is yeah. It's I've okay. I've been really happy using Ruby and uh, most of the the. Uh, programming style that I developed working in Smalltalk works really well in Ruby, and and in fact that was like the thing that kicked off my tweet storm yesterday. I tweeted something about uh, you know hating everything about JavaScript and CoffeeScript and Backbone, and suddenly there were a hundred replies. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the uh, the um, I I, would, I was doing some work in you know client side you know browser coding, and I was looking at the code, and it was just like this whole mis mishmash of crap. And you know, you call a function to, that returns you a function that you call that returns you another function that actually does the thing you want to do. It's like this is not object-oriented programming. This is functional programming, and I, I probably just need to sit down and write a good rant on my blog about how having language systems that have two, multiple design centers is mm -hmm. not a good way to go. And mm -hmm. you know, and and that's one of the problems with programming in JavaScript and even Ruby is that there's no strong guidance to say, okay, you have to, you have to be an object-oriented language. You have to use the object-oriented design center mm -hmm. as your primary mm -hmm. focus. And, and it's too easy to go off and do functional things. And, and there's really nothing wrong with functional programming except that it's not as good as object-oriented programming. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> yeah, besides, besides that, you know, if you want to do functional programming, have at it. And more power to you. Hang on, I'm typing something into Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but don't try and mix those styles because it's just going to get you in trouble. You won't know how you know how to understand the logic of of your program structure. The, so so, but that said, Ruby has everything you need in it to teach someone object oriented programming, or you know probably functional programming if you wanted to go that way. But it's probably not the best choice for that. I would do Scheme. Yeah, it's like don't don't. Don't start off teaching people Ruby by telling them about you know all the weird edge cases and bizarre features and, and things like that. You, you start with the core of objects and messages and variables and in you know classes and inheritance and you you can focus on those things just fine. So I I actually found that a little surprising when you tweeted it yesterday, Josh. That like why would you start with an object oriented language and not teach objects in like the first lesson? And yeah. <laughs> I think like I, I like I actually agree with that like the the messages and stuff like that. Did you mean creating objects though because I don't do that like when I teach the first lesson. Uh yeah, I did I didn't mean the like how to define classes and things okay. like that. Okay. But, okay. No, I just, I just meant like what's the fundamental execution model of the language? Yeah. Oh, right. well, you have objects. You send messages to them. Right, <laughs> the, right. right. Yeah, the, and and, and uh, you know, I have, I have a friend who's who's learning Ruby right now. He's learning to program. He's in a Ruby programming class, and I looked at his syllabus, and they didn't get to like objects and classes until like the third or fourth lesson of mm -hmm. the 
the course. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to tell you what objects are. <laughs> and, and we spent about 15 minutes having a conversation about objects and messages and classes and inheritance. I didn't get into polymorphism. But, but I just talked about the basics of, you know, an object has identity, state, and behavior. And we you know, had a small conversation about that. And he totally got it. He understood, you know, we had a, he, he echoed everything back and showed that he understood what it meant. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems like a really fine way to start when you're teaching a language. Yeah. I think a lot of the detractors of Ruby as a, as a learning language is that there's so much, so much weeds to get off into. The you know yeah it's it's a fine OO language to teach somebody you can you can demonstrate you know it just, it blows people's minds especially if they've seen a little bit of programming anywhere else that you can call three dot two string that you, you can call a method on an integer what <laughs> you know the, yeah it's all objects baby except for the things that aren't and and that's the problem right the, except for the things that aren't right in Ruby constants aren't variables don't right the, mm-hmm. the whole that whole thing but if you if you treat the language as you know, let's just stay on kind of the beginner's version of Ruby. Let's just, you know, let's let's keep the landing gear down, keep the training wheels on. Can we teach well with this language? And I think the answer is resoundingly yes. It it's <clears throat> this is going to be a really bad comparison, but I want to point out that this was what the language was designed for. It's as easy to teach as Visual Basic. And uh, I don't know a lot of people hate that language, but VB was meant to be a programming language to teach non-programmers to program. It was it was to teach guys with MBAs that didn't know, you know, how to program, how to write their own, you know, crappy U well, gorgeous UIs with crappy spaghetti code behind them. And the language really, really excelled at doing that. And Ruby is even easier than Visual Basic at teaching people how to write simple beginners programming language. The- That's interesting. Do you know what the first programming language most people learn is? My guess would be basic. Excel. Yeah. Oh, very Mm. nice. I like that. Well, well, it's a language where the control structures uh, are are geometric. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can see the lists. You can see the arrays. You can. Mm -hmm. It's visual. Right, the data structures and the control structures are all based on the geometry of things, and that's something people are good at, at understanding. Mm-hmm. The, and, and, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the number of people who write formulas in Excel and build Excel, Excel spreadsheets, there's probably far more of them than there are professional programmers. Right, mm-hmm. and it comes it comes out. I'm, I think I've mentioned before I'm taking the thirty by five hundred marketing class right now, and uh, we were actually talking about. Uh, a bit ago about um, Excel being, if, if you want to see somewhere where an app is needed, look for a problem people are solving with Excel. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it's a coping mechanism, right? Yep. Excel is a coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah, I actually had a client approach me that was that basically said, yeah, we have all of our patient data over in this database over here and then everything else is in Excel spreadsheets. And that's what, that's what they wanted to solve was exactly that. Because mm-hmm. Um, otherwise they had to pass the spreadsheets around and worry about which version was the latest and all this stuff. So that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. One other thing that I like about Ruby for its, uh, teachability is just that the syntax is very forgiving. And so you don't have to focus on it as much. You know, if somebody puts, um, parentheses in or what, what have you, you know, it doesn't hurt things. And so, 
you know, um, you don't have to worry about, okay, make sure you have all your semicolons in and then make sure that it compiles and make sure that this and that, you know, you just, uh, you just write it up and run it and you know whether or not you got it right. Oh, it's, it's so much better than teaching someone Java. I mean, you know, Java, you have so much ceremony uh, and, and you have to do so much stuff to make the compiler happy that doesn't really add to the value of your program. It's not expressive. It, do, it mm-hmm. doesn't help you. So yeah, Java is a horrible choice for a teaching language, but yet that's what most colleges have been using. Yeah, that's what I, I was, learned in college. I was about to disagree with you both and say that there's something something good, something nicely didactic about the fact that you have to have the open paren, close paren, semicolon, that you have to have that or your program doesn't work. And I I literally flipped in the middle of hearing you guys describe this. And the reason why is because... Uh, on the one hand, it's really nice that if you forget a, a parenthesis, your program's not going to work. And 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 that that it's nice. It's it's succinct. It's it's got to work this way, or it's not going to work. But this is actually a false. This, this is this is a false idol because there's absolutely no rule that says if you get all your parentheses and semicolons in the right place, that your program will actually work. And I've met a lot of programmers that think that that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, wow. it, it's totally a, a place where they go for comfort is that they, you know, I, I have it all defined inside these curly braces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, really, that doesn't particularly matter when it comes down to doing good programming. Right. And just in case, just in case I haven't drawn enough hate mail from the people out there, this applies to all the way up to static analysis. It's of the devil. <laughs> so I am. Um, I had a couple of things. Uh that I thought about when we were uh, talking about this topic. One, uh, here's a fun question for the room. Um, What programming language did you learn on? I've actually been trying to figure that out for myself. Uh, That's a good question. The first programming language that I learned was um, synthetic programming on a TI-58C calculator. Gotcha. I, I I was gonna. One of my early knee jerk reactions was that I learned to program on my TI uh, TI eighty five. I think, but I but actually, as I as I kept digging deeper, I decided that wasn't where I learned to program. Ooh. Well, I, well I, was, I was I took a basic programming class in high school around that time, so uh, it's it's I don't know like exactly which language I learned first. The 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 calculator was much more interesting than the basic language, but I I did I learned basic in high school as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I kind of did both. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I saved up and bought a TI eighty five calculator, and I programmed on that quite a bit. But at the same time, I was also in this. It was kind of like this elite math club. For I don't know how to explain it, but it was actually a class that you could take, and we prepared for like the math counts um, and and state math contests and all that stuff. You got and, stuffed in lockers by a nicer quality of jock. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so as part of this club, we actually started programming in Pascal. So I, I did a little bit of both, and in in elementary school, we did the little. Uh, what is it? The turtle logo? Logo. logo. That yeah. is what I was going to say I learned with. Was so logo. so I, it's kind of a, a mix of those. And then when I was in high school, I took an electronics class. And uh, I, I took it all three years of high school or all three, the last three years of high school, um, which around here is high school, software, sophomore, junior, and senior. Anyway, um, 
So while I was in there, we got to the point where we were actually um, building more complex circuits, and uh, the final chapters of the advanced electronics class was actually, um, they gave us an 8085, and uh, we would actually input the um, bits for the, um, the, what do you call it, the, the, the command for the, mm -hmm. the chip, and uh, then it would, you know, it would store it in a buffer. So we were actually programming basically in binary against this, uh, this 8085 chip to get the outputs that we wanted. So uh huh, that's mm -hmm. great. The the, pro, the absolutely the lowest level crap that I've done was when I when I was doing small talk virtual machine development. Yeah, you know, this was at Xerox, and Xerox had this really cool way of building uh, computers so that they could do language research, where they had writable control stores, so you could program the microcode. You could program in microcode to create the machine language instruction set, and and that's what Lisp was written in on the on the small on these uh, Xerox machines, and that's what Smalltalk was written in. And there was another language called Mesa, which was a lot like Ada, that was also mm -hmm. implemented that way. So basically, say okay, we're, we're going to define a virtual machine, and then we're going to implement all of the all of the opcodes, all the bytecodes for this language as machine level instructions that we've built in microcode. And and you know microcode is kind of ridiculous to program in you really have to think like a computer and you're doing and you have these incredibly wide instructions and a set and a section of it says what to do with the ALU and another one says what to do with the you know the memory controller and another one yeah so that and you can get yourself in trouble by in, by creating instructions that can take longer to settle than the cycle time of the of the processor and you have to know not to do that kind of stuff it's yep. just it's it's just completely bizarre programming in microcode and but doing that what doing that for a year was a really incredible experience because everything after that was high level for me so yeah i have to say when i was in college i was a computer engineering major which is much more akin to electrical engineering than it is computer science mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so we one of our projects was we designed a chip and then we actually uh, got a chip that was similar in design to what our assignment had been and we started writing um, operating system level things so we had to write the interrupt code for the for the chip in the class and we had to do all that in assembly um, oh, cool. basically you know using all the op codes and stuff so I mean you know, yeah, you get into that level of, of detail. And I mean, you, you have no debugger. Your debugger is, oh, crap, it didn't work. Let's go scour the code. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, if you're lucky, you're working on a virtual chip. So maybe you can like kind of freeze it and step through it. But we didn't have that luxury. So, I mean, really, it's, it's a different level of programming. And then, you know, we did a lot of C. I mean, everything else that we did in that class was C. And then um, the computer science classes were all Java and C++. So, you, know, you kind of get a full range there, but yeah, it, it, it's it's really interesting where it can take you, and you know what? Again, it, it's the challenges, you know, the the problems that come up that you know, yeah, you would never get that in Ruby or Java, and so you know, it is are those languages worthless? No, it it really just comes down to what you need to know. That's, so so one of the things that people don't often think about when they're programming in Ruby or JavaScript is memory allocation and deallocation. Memory management is not a thing that you worry out about at all. Uh -oh, and, we're going to get in a fight here. Well, well, no, we're not. <laughs> we're, 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 we're not. Yes, you're, you are. You're, you're, you are going to agree with me, James. That, so I, the, 
programming in C or, or assembly or Pascal or whatever, where you have to explicitly allocate and free memory on your own and understand the implications of allocating a bunch of memory and the overhead of, of just dealing with all that is really important experience. And it's great. It's great. To, you know, it's like uh, in the Karate Kid where he has to do the wax on, wax off. It's and you know you're you're never waxing a car when you're fighting, but for him it was it built up muscles that he could use when he was fighting. And so I think it's the same thing. You learn language a language like C, and you learn some of the underlying stuff that programs do that are th that's then abstracted away when you get to Ruby. I think that's really valuable knowledge. And when you're running around in Ruby and allocating a gazillion new strings because you, you know, wrote some weird little, you know, DSL parsing thing that, you know, is completely non-optimal for memory management, uh, that can have a big impact on your program. Right. So, so, so what you're saying is, is that having an understanding of how the heap works and how, how it's management, and managed at a lower level when you get to the higher level languages can really help you understand, okay, when I'm allocating, allocating all of these, I need to clean up my references so that they'll go away. Yeah, yeah that and a number of other things. Right. So, so James, do you agree with me? Uh, yes. I think in, okay. in general I do that. I, I, although I, I want to say um, yesterday when I heard Avdi say that the fundamentals are hidden by the incidentals is the reason he wouldn't teach Ruby. I thought that was ironic because the reason I would consider Ruby a good learning language is, and I'll probably get hate mail for this, but I would rather teach memory management in Ruby than I would in C. Like, I, I've done it. I've taught someone how memory allocation works and, and, and things like that using Ruby as a language. It's not impossible. Like it's, uh, you know, for example, even, even if you just, uh, it, it's trivial to write a stupid simple loop in Ruby that does way too much, allocates way too many objects, kicks in uh, garbage collection all the time, and the program will just slow down and run like molasses, you know? Mm -hmm. And you can do that no problem. And then uh, you can look at it in top and watch the memory boom, 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 you know, see when garbage collection kicks in, especially if you're like printing output because the world pauses, right? And then the number goes back down, you know, and, and, um, and then you can walk them through the steps of what's being done there, you know, and while, while you don't, don't see the malic and free, you know, you will see that, uh, you know, look, here Here we're making a new object, making a new object, making a new object. You can use uh, uh, object space has, I think, the ways to print out the object counts. So you can print those out, watch those numbers climb, 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 you know, and then all of a sudden the world stops while a garbage collection tries to get ahead, you know. And, and, uh, and, and this is why Ruby, uh, people think Ruby leaks memory, right? Because what do we all do? We use closures everywhere because they're blocks. They capture the surrounding state. You don't clean that block up. And so basically that memory is tracked forever, right? Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. So I, I, I agree that, that, that that's all happening in Ruby and you need to have some level of awareness of it. And a lot of us get that awareness from a language like C, which is explicitly forcing you to malloc and free, you know. You know but, what's going to happen now. Avdi's going to listen to this podcast and his next book's going to be Memory Management in Ruby. 
I mean, no, it's, <laughs> it's, this will be the first episode that generates hate mail from one of the Rugi Rose. Right, <laughs> our own member giving his hate mail. It's like, <laughs> screw you guys. Yeah. No, so, so, um, or Steve Klabnik. He, he always has an opinion about us, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm excited because he's coming to Mountain West RubyConf and, uh, it's, it's going to be pistols at dawn. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, but, uh, what it comes down to, I think, is that in, in a low level language, you have to take care of all these incidentals and, or they will, they will bite your hand clean off. And so you learn very quickly to keep your hands inside the car, right? And on a, on a big language like like Ruby, that's very polite and very friendly and very caretakery. That you know, it coddles you quite a bit. Languages like that 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 I don't see this as a defect. I see this as a, as a total feature, especially for learning. Is that you can sit somebody down and say, "Let's just tell the computer to do what we want." If you if you read a small talk manual, they actually say, "Don't worry your pretty little head about what the objects are doing right now. It's magic. Just let yourself believe in the magic. We'll figure out the fundamentals later." And I think you should do that with Ruby. And once you've got this, got down this this real idea that that it's magic. That just it just you just tell the computer to do what you want. Then maybe your second language should be C. Let's pull you down almost to the hardware level and then throw you into the, you know, let, let the garbage, there is no garbage collector, right? Let the memory manager eat your lunch. Let all of this stuff just attack you and, and, and just totally kick your trash so that you can then realize that, wait, nothing has changed. I still have to tell the computer to do something and it does it. It just happens to be there's a whole lot more, there's a whole lot more control but there's also, well, you know, what the system does for you, the system also does to you. And if you can take Ruby and get that mindset of I'm a programmer, I tell the machine what to do, you can go down to C. And instead of instead of this this mentality that a lot of us have that when we're in C, oh, I'm the programmer, I'm beset by all the things I must do. No, 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 no. You're the programmer. You get to tell the computer what to do. Just remember that you're now in control of everything. And it's like you, you now have to take over control of the autonomic nervous system. If you stop telling the computer to breathe, it will die. <laughs> it's, it's the difference between driving your car and overhauling the engine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as far, I, I think I agree with David. Like, I learned C, but it definitely wasn't my first, second, even third. You know, I was going to say logo was my first. And I, I actually debated that one with myself for quite a while. Like, does it count? But I decided that it did because it taught me how to do things like loop or conditionally do something and that that is the heart of programming, right? And yeah. so I, I decided that it did count. And then after that, I learned on, uh, I, I moved on to a, a ColecoVision Atom. Yeah, I was like one of the three people that had one of those. <laughs> um, but it came with a, a like thousand page basic manual and I taught myself basic from that. And then after that, it was a lot of programming on TI-85 and I think later a TI-89. And I think they called that language some variant of Pascal. It was actually closer to basic, in my opinion. Um, and then I did take a Pascal class in high school, um, so I learned some of that. And, and you know, so I, I pick up C, but it's way down the road, you know, it's not the the first thing uh, that I played with, and my C is still pretty bad, you know, when I do have to actually sit mm -hmm. down and write some because I don't spend enough time doing it. You know, I've never gotten very good at it. Um, but so I, I, I like what David says that, that you know, you, you, should, you should stop there at some point. It should be on the path that you visit, you know, but 
I don't, I don't think you should start there. Like, right. Well, I mean, yeah, okay. So, so that, that's great. I, I, I think I, I, I agree with you there. What, what about, what about like odd little languages like fourth? That's a great question. Um, I actually have a pretty good opinion on that. Like, you know, uh, the pragmatic programmers tell you, uh, learn one language every year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I, I love that practice and uh, learning new things. Right now, my language this year is Emacs Lisp. Uh, don't ask me how that's going. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it, it's I don't care up, how it, it's going. Woo! <laughs> it, it's, it's messing up your use of parentheses in Ruby. Right. Yeah. Now Josh complains about my tweets because they have too many parentheses in them. Uh, so that's how it's going. Uh, we're, we're de- def method, yeah. open paren, open paren, open paren, open right. paren. Uh, <laughs> Parameters, close paren, close paren, close paren, close paren. That's right. So, so, um, so forth. Yeah, yeah. Like languages. Well, it, I, I watch people doing this learn a language a year thing. And it's interesting. Watch them because they tweet about it. You know, it's like, oh, now I'm learning Ruby. And now I'm learning Scala. And now I'm learning Clojure. And it's like, yeah, they're really just bouncing from uh, fad language to fad language. And, and like, once you've learned a, a you know a, a rob, object-oriented language you know well like Smalltalk or whatever you know you're not going to get that much out of learning another one you know and and so my advice is yeah you should learn a language a year I totally agree with that but make them make some of them bizarre or complementary you know so like fourth is a great example because I would classify it as bizarre but. Um, that things like awk and said, right? Prologue. Prologue. Yeah, yeah. Prologue, right. Yeah, yeah. Or sit down and really learn regular expressions. I mean, like all, all the way to, to the forward and backward look aheads and things like that, you know? The, the strange, unusual languages. I think you get more out of that, you know, because uh, you, you learn unusual ways to look at things which is the whole point of the exercise yeah i i I definitely agree and i think more than just you know pick something that you think is odd but pick something that really kind of forces you into something that you know you could do better so um for example my understanding is that erlang um or haskell or one of them you know is really focused on concurrent programming and so if you don't know that well and you need to learn it, then by all means, pick that language, um, you know, or pick some of these other languages that, you know, force you like small talk. If you think you need to improve on object oriented programming, my understanding is that that's a great way to do it, you know. And so it's not just, you know, picking those weirdos that are out there, but actually picking the the programming languages that that force you into the areas that you want to improve on. Yeah. I also want to point out that uh, fourth is. I don't consider that an odd language at all. Fourth is is basically Lisp without the parentheses. If you sit down and, and try to figure out how to write, right? Everybody who's seen Lisp says, "Oh, it's a good idea. I wish I could get rid of the parentheses." That's fourth. Um, you you flip the operators around so that they come at the end, and you now have a language. It's an RPN language, so if you spend a lot of time, you know, goofing around on your calculator, you know, especially if it was an HP calculator programming for those, fourth makes perfect sense. David, your orientation as a programmer is com- is confusing your orientation as someone who actually writes in code. Yes, everything's Turing equivalent, and and Lisp at its heart is a stack machine. 
Mm-hmm. But nobody really thinks of it that way. It's the, it's the same right. thing in Smalltalk. Smalltalk is a stack machine. If you yeah. look at the bytecode instruction set in Smalltalk, it's push this, pop that. Yep. Uh, but the but you don't use the language that way, and I, so I think it's an unfair right. comparison. I, well, the fourth the, fourth is like the ultimate stack machine language, and it's, it's, and it's the best thing in the world to learn if you really want to master uh, low level abstractions. Yes. And 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 you want a simple system that just lets you focus on one or two things. So fourth actually has a couple of really really key distinct uh, advantages. Um, the first of which is the really cool bumper sticker that says, uh, "What is that? Honk fourth, love if then." Um, the the second really cool advantage is that it is a language for which it is incredibly easy to write a compiler, and mm-hmm. so a lot of <clears throat> small embedded machines. Uh, the first compiler that comes into existence for these machines is a fourth compiler, and yes. the only and the only fourth program you write is the C compiler, <laughs> and then you're done, right? Huh. Yeah, yeah. You can do a fourth compiler in one page of fourth. Yeah. Well, and you can also do it in in you know three pages of assembly language. It's that, that's, that's yeah. you, you can you can take microcode because it's uh, you know if you've got a machine that manages a stack in hardware, you can write a fourth compiler in. You know, yeah, three hundred opcodes, five hundred opcodes. It's it's a very tiny, tiny language. It's very easy to compile. It's hard to write, but it's very easy to compile that language. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Well, so, before I, we get to the picks, I need to I need to preemptively cut off some hate mail. Um, I don't think static analysis is a bad idea. I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I think every way you can check your code is a brilliant idea. I just think believing static analysis is the end-all, be-all, and that is what we're seeing come out of a lot of these like Java schools and programming as a, as a trade technology school is that if your program passes its static analysis, it must therefore be perfect. That's all I wanted to say with that. I just wanted to, pr- you just wanted to cut off the, the hate mail before it starts. <laughs> all right. Um, let's do the picks. Josh, you want to go first? Uh, oh, you last week when I was trying to get out early, you made me last. And this week when I have nothing to, to say, you pick me first. Uh, you, you're welcome. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're a master at your craft. Okay. I actually do have a pick. Uh, and that's, um, the Ruby mine IDE. Ooh. And so I, you know, I spent years working in Smalltalk, which had just this amazing IDE. And for those who live under a rock, IDE is Integrated Development Environment. Uh, and that that was one of the big selling points of Smalltalk was that you're not stuck in just a text editor. You have an environment that really understands your program and can help you navigate it and help you make decisions about how you structure it. The, and so the Smalltalk IDE, totally awesome. Uh, for some reason, Ruby has not evolved a really good set of development tools. There's, you know, a, a great IDE, uh, or at least, you know, it, it, it's a very challenging language for building those things in. I, I, I think personally, the the dynamic nature of Ruby makes it incredibly difficult to build these things, and static analysis falls over pretty quickly, and uh, you know, and you don't have the Smalltalk image which holds the entire compiled program in in memory at once so you you, know, you don't have that to to help you out uh, but that said you know there's a lot that you can do uh, just by being clever and I was pretty resistant at, at using RubyMine for a couple years uh, mainly because uh, when I first start, tried using it a couple years ago the the experience of just editing text and manipulating the the characters in a program was pretty clunky compared to TextMate. 
and, and it wasn't a very good citizen on the Macintosh. Uh, those problems have been solved now. It's it's actually a pretty decent text editor, and the Mac integration is acceptable. And you know, I've actually been really enjoying using the the IDE features. Uh, you know, you see a you see a a method in a in a or you see a a message you know, a method name in a method, and you can click on it and just navigate to the place in your code where that's defined. So, I've been enjoying it. It, it the multilingual. Integration is really great. Uh, it you know you can do both um, both Ruby and JavaScript, and it ha even has support for you know CoffeeScript and SAS and SCSS and you know all these other uh, and Haml. So um, it's it's been a pretty good uh, and useful uh, productivity tool for me in programming. So cool. I, I, I'm know, just I, curious, what did what did you use before that, Josh? TextMate. Okay, just and, and, and TextMate actually is not bad at all. And if you're pretty good with, uh, you know, using regular expressions and searching, uh, it's almost as fast to find things in TextMate as it is, you know, clicking on something in um, in RubyMine. But uh, but it requires a little more thinking to do so. I have uh, James's TextMate book, and I use it. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, James. The whole book is great. I like the whole book. I found it really, really useful. But I have it bookmarked to the page that talks about command F, option, command, shift, G, for, you know, the find in, find in file, replace in file. The, the find and replace in TextMate, the keys are not optimal. And I guess the TextMate book is good in that you can read through it and then go back to it and use it as a reference. But for me, the reference is that one page. How the hell do I do find and replace in TextMate from the keyboard? <laughs> nice. That's hilarious. Yeah, they should build in uh, Vim key bindings. That would solve all your problems, right, Dave? Well, it would solve... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although I've, I've almost got Emacs running a, a full-blown VM with a, with a GUI, so uh, I should be able to run TextMate inside Emacs, and that'll be okay. Uh, okay, guys. <laughs> Guys, I didn't want to. I didn't want to accidentally start the editor wars episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only sentence that if you remove accidentally, then the sentence comes true. I did want to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yo, yeah. We'll, we'll do Vim versus Emacs next episode. We yes! we, we really should, and and I think we should open it up to things like TextMate and IDEs, just so that we can talk about. Because I think we've all used all a lot of the different options out there and it'd be fun to talk about I totally, I totally think we should do an editor war episode I, I totally did. think we should I'll, okay. show up. I'll bring Gary Bernhardt he'll be on my team <laughs> actually uh, I'm going to be on the same team as, as Gary Bernhardt um, which is that both of us have used both and are proficient at both and we have one that we prefer over the other but we're actually I was actually surprised about this but Gary Bernhardt he's got if you go to destroy all software he's got an Emacs tutorial and he basically says, here's all the things that Emacs does that I love that Vim doesn't do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I claimed him first. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Then you have to be on our team. <laughs> <laughs> all right. James, what are your picks? Okay. I've got a couple of picks this time. Um, first, I was uh, surprised to see. I was looking back through our picks to see if uh, this might have been nominated or not. And it hadn't been. Um, so I, I'm going to nominate Puzzle Mode. It's a programming problem site and I've been using it uh, teaching some Ruby lately uh, so I've been using it as just like sample problems uh, it does have a couple of minuses which um, the first minus is that the problem difficulty range is massive 
<laughs> to problems I can solve in literally 15 minutes to problems that took me a very long time. Um, so there's a very large range and you just you can't really tell looking at a problem. Uh, Question number three out of 20 is prove that P equals NP. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to be a little careful there because uh, you can definitely bite off some big ones there. But, um, uh, but you know, usually just by reading them, you can kind of tell what's uh, uh, roughly what the difficulty level is. Um, isn't, so that the one that, isn't that the one that's put up by Ruby Mendicant University? Yeah, it is. It's uh, by Greg and uh, Greg, Gregory Brown and uh, Jordan Byron, the, the guys that work on um, uh, Ruby Mendicant University. That's right. And they use it as like entry exams, I think, for, for the university. So working these problems uh, is, is the kind of one of the barriers to get in. Um, the other thing about it is um, when you submit your solution, all you get is thumbs up, thumbs down, basically. So uh, if you're wrong, you don't know why you're wrong, <laughs> you know, which uh, right. can be a little rough uh, as far as figuring it out. But I have found that that kind of pushed me to some creative solutions. Like in one case where I was I was wrong and I couldn't tell why. So I actually added a, a piece to it that would make it easy for me to visually verify and obviously there were a whole bunch of examples, but I just kind of went through and started visually verifying until I found a problem, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I found that actually pushed me to be surprisingly creative. So it didn't turn out to be as big a minus as I thought. But um, but anyways, the problems are good. They give you inputs and outputs, and they're usually pretty well described and uh, stuff like that. So if you're the kind of person like me that enjoys working programming problems or you're just trying to improve your Ruby uh, or, or something like that, I, I recommend working the puzzle node problems. They're pretty good. Um, my other recommendation, which is not code related, judging by the feedback I've received on Twitter, my most popular pick ever was when I picked Zoe Keating um, for her cello music. And uh, I, I have a new quasi Zoe Keating pick. Um, the, uh, but some people pointed out that, um, Radiolab had an episode on Zoe Keating, which is true. Uh, that's how I found out about her as well. Um, and then I, I'm continuing to work through the Radiolab, uh, episodes. And, uh, one of their later episodes is about, um, this, uh, event where they, they remixed, uh, they did a, a big challenge for remixing, the classical song in C, Terry Riley's in C. Um, and it's, uh, it's really great. They, they had, I think there's like 17 or something like that. There's a lot of uh, remixes um, for this, this one classical song. And they're very all over the place. I mean, you'll be surprised. Some kind of techno sounding stuff, some kind of nature sounding stuff. Anyways, it's all in a CD. And uh, Zoe Keating does one of the uh, remixes on that CD, and not surprisingly, it's it's one of my favorites. Uh, but there's also some other good ones on there. There's there's like you know two maybe that I don't really enjoy, uh, but I, I did enjoy many of them. And it's a pretty cool CD. Again, uh, kind of programming music kind of stuff. So I'm gonna go ahead and recommend that as well, since everybody liked the Zoe Keating pick. Those are my picks. Cool, uh, David. What are your picks? All right, so I'm going to deviate from a long history of staggeringly useful picks and absolutely practical, pragmatic things. And I'm actually going to recommend today, I'm going to, my pick is Star Wars Uncut. Um, This is a website where 
they have uh, basically taken the entire Star Wars, the episode four, the, the the good one, right, the very first one. They've cut it up into fifteen second segments, and then crowdsourced a fan remake. So basically, you go to the website, you find any fifteen second segment of the movie that you like, and you remake it however you want. And people have come in. And they've done anything from, you know, graphics done on like a TI-99 4A. Oh, I never told, I never got to pick, say where, what I learned on first. And that was basic on a TI-99 4A. Um, but anyway, the graphics, you know, like like pixelated, you know, 40 character column graphics. I mean, it's like like EGA resolution, VGA, you know, not, not even VGA, but like EGA, CGA uh, resolution graphics all the way up to... Uh, live action people running around with, you know, a, a, a kid in a trash can uh, for R2-D2 and, you know, a, a tall guy wrapped in gold tinfoil. Uh, and it looks like tinfoil. I mean, it, it's, it looks awful. And what they did is they got enough submissions that they basically said, okay, that's, that 15-segment segment is brilliant. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Let's take all the brilliant ones and string them together. And so StarWarsUncut.com, they have released the full two-hour Star Wars movie, or however long the, the feature length is, made up of these 15 seconds, the best of breed 15-second segments. To say that the movie is a little disjointed is an understatement, because you go from one 15-segment segment, segment by one person to the next, to the next, to the next, and literally you go from horrible you know, could have done it on my calculator level graphics to live action back to crappy CGI over to, you know, Legos uh, in stop motion over to clay dolls in stop motion. It's, it's absolutely the most horrifying thing that you have to go see. It's absolutely brilliant. It, 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 it's, it's a work of, uh, it's a staggering achievement. It's, yes. And, and, and <laughs> yes. The, the, it, I've I've only watched like the first fifteen minutes of it, but it's pretty pretty amazing. My favorite it's, bit. My favorite bit is like the the tall like pudgy guy with a beard dressed up as Princess Leia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it is the most beautiful train wreck you will not be able to tear your eyes away from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's scaring me how much this is sounding cool to me. <laughs> That's I've what I'm feeling. Experienced that, it. And... That is the correct reaction. That is the correct mindset. Ambivalence. Ambivalence. Yeah, go watch it now before the Motion Picture Association goes and takes it down. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. good idea. Yeah, yeah. My review of this uh, Star Wars Uncut is: I'm so excited, I'm so afraid. <laughs> <laughs> That's my pick. Okay, what were you saying, Josh? I was wondering if they had a download link for it. I'll, I'll uh, if you go to StarWarsUncut.com, there is a link up at the top for watch the uncut movie, uh, which is StarWarsUncut.com/slash/watch. Cool. Yeah. And if, if they do take it down, I hope they put it up on BitTorrent because that would really tick the motion picture folks off. Anyway, so my picks. Um, first off, I got a brand new mouse, and I'm sure everybody else in the world has one of these mice. It's the Apple mouse that doesn't have any buttons on it. The it, I think it's the Magic Mouse. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, uh, that's not really magic. No. <laughs> it's magic to me. I swipe my fingers. Yeah, homeopathy. (laughs) Yeah, the buttons are actually there. They just put, they're like one part per trillion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm 
I'm I'm loving this thing. I mean, you know, I can scroll, I can right click, left left click, and everything. But it looks cool, and it's Bluetooth, which is the big thing for me. Because uh, if you if you look at my desk, and I'm pretty sure Dave's the only one that's actually seen my desk. <laughs> there, I mean, it's just I have my mixer and my mute button, which uh, works for my microphone, but doesn't work for Skype because Skype for some reason got switched back over to my uh, webcam for the audio. Um, but uh, then I've got my digital audio recorder and this big mess of wires. And so just taking one mess or one wire out of the mess, it it really appealed to me. So I I have been in the room where Chuck alleges that his desk is, and I can't actually uh, testify that I have seen his desk. <laughs> yeah, you can't see the top of my desk. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, that was something that I, I really got excited about. And uh, the other pick, the one that let me uh, get this recorded, my two-year-old is sick, and so my wife left my office door open, which is why um, Josh could hear my son yelling. Um, And uh, my wife left the door open so I could hear her if she needed anything, but she was downstairs watching a Dora movie. So my other pick is Dora the Explorer, just just because it buys me time to get stuff done, so... I would have stood up and cheered if you had said, my next pick is tranquilizer darts. <laughs> Benadryl, lots of it. Daddy, I was... <laughs> <laughs> Don't tempt me, Dave. I, I can't wait to be a parent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet I'm going to keep waiting. <laughs> I, I, I think... I, I think there are actually laws that prohibit you from becoming a parent. <laughs> <laughs> or if there's not, we will start them. Just yeah, there's, there's, there's a lobbying. There, there's a lobby. <laughs> oh, man. It would only take me about 10 minutes to amass enough evidence to keep Dave from ever adopting. <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing because it's true. Yeah, it's actually weird. Like, how come adoptions don't have a devil's advocate? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Dave would need one. It's like, yeah. this This baby's obviously been bad. Give him to Dave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so that's all we have here. I just want to remind everybody that uh, we will be reading Land of Lisp and reviewing it on the 22nd of February. We are going to have Conrad on. I just noticed that uh, if you look at the cover, it's Conrad Bartsky, MD. That's the number one question on my uh, list of questions. Yeah, I was going to. I'm planning on asking him that, too, so. I wanted to ask him how much Lisp gets used in, you know, being an MD. Yeah, there you go. I want to know how much well, well, MD gets used in his Lisp. <laughs> and and is Lisp and is Lisp invasive or non-invasive? Ooh, good question. <laughs> anyway, um, the other thing is, is we are in iTunes, so uh, go leave us a review. Really appreciate that. Uh, there's a link on the website if you want to subscribe. Um, you can also subscribe on your other devices by clicking on the. Uh, RSS link and uh, I'm working on getting the podcast into a few other directories. I've had a few requests for Stitcher radio. So uh, we're working on that as well. And uh, so keep an eye out if you're using Stitcher or any of those other uh, directories instead of iTunes and we'll see if we can make that available to you that way. Um, Other than that, we'll catch you next week and thank you for listening. Bye everybody. Bye. Love you everybody. Remember it's the amps, not the volts. (laughs) Nice. Come on. I have another iMic over here somewhere.